Good evening and welcome to the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. Now, sometimes I talk about films, sometimes I talk about music, you know, because without music, you don't have film or the dog barking. Yeah, I leave it all in. I leave it all in. It's been an interesting time doing this show. I think it's March 18th is my third anniversary. And last year during the quarantine, I did like, oh my God, 10 episodes in one day. Short episodes though, not long. You know, when I first started this show, I did a three minute show and then I kept doing them because I didn't know that, you know, you could extend the time limit. And I had intended for years to do a podcast. In 2012, I tried to do one about Downtown Abbey and... You know, it just wasn't the right time. Everything has its time. So tonight, I promise you, a fun show. Last night's show was fun. It was amazing. It was eye-opening. It was eye-opening, and I'm very grateful for having um, my guest, George, on the show last night. Such an amazing individual. He is the one who recommended I watch The Devils, and, you know... Some people will be recommended to film and go, yeah, I'll, I'll watch it. Yeah, they're not going to watch it. And then I'm like, okay, sure, I'll, I'll watch it if that's what you want me to watch. Um, I will probably be watching it again coming soon. So, you know, this is the month of March I first started. Now I sound like Barbara Walters. <laughs> I wanted to do a show about women with different personalities. It's called The View. Yeah. Uh, huh. Yeah. See how I almost. Yeah. So last week we lost the great Lawrence Ferlinghetti. There are a couple of films on the beats. There's a really good film that I have. I'd seen it years ago on Ovation TV. And it came out in 1999, I think. And it's called The Source. And it's about the beat poets. Burroughs, Kerouac, Ferlinghetti. It was directed by Chuck Workman. Screenplay by Chuck Workman. Yeah. Dennis Hopper does William S. Burroughs reading his stuff. Johnny Depp, Jack Kerouac. I'm trying to think who else. It's such a it's such a good documentary. I really loved it. You know, John Turturro uh, is doing uh huh Ginsburg stuff. Yeah, yeah, gotta love it. This documentary opened my eyes, just like the Devils opened my eyes. There are certain films, documentaries, uh, you know, like with uh. Great Gardens that opened my eyes. I love documentaries. I still haven't. I still haven't watched it. Might get loud. I want to. There are so many films and documentaries that I want to watch. And you know, some people would say, "Well, who has the time?" Well, I have the time. Now, the source. I love poetry. I love poetry. I started writing it when I was fifteen. I'm not going to recite it on here. Now, when I say the source, some people are going to think, I mean, the source awards. No. And I'm aware of the source awards. Okay. Mm. Oh, here's some of Johnny Depp reading Jack Kerouac. Belief and technique for modern prose by Jack Kerouac. List of essentials. One, 
scribbled secret notebooks and wild typewritten pages for your own joy. Two, submissive to everything, open, listening. Three, try and never get drunk outside your own house. Four, be in love with your life. Five, something that you feel will find its own form. Six, be crazy dumb saint of the mind. Seven, blow as deep as you want to blow. Eight, write what you want, bottomless, from bottom of the mind. Nine, the unspeakable visions of the individual. Dean was in a trance. The tenorman's eyes were fixed straight on him. He had a madman who not only understood, but cared and wanted to understand more, and much more than there was. The tenorman wore a tattered suede jacket, purple shirt, cracked shoes, and zoot pants without press. And that's Johnny, and Johnny can go on all night. Let's get real here. I like Johnny, but no. Uh... Mm, there's so many parts to the beats, you know, and the music that inspired it. It is such a such a documentary, though. Here's Gregory Corso. Dear audience, we early heads of present style and consciousness are the daddies of the age. The beats and standing up got left at by the civilization. All the academic, you don't know how much hatred was for these guys and sneers and teachers would snicker. Please, you may as well open. The moment the beard first opened in Los Angeles, every night city vice squad detectives arrested the cast and the producer. Now, when are we going to get controversial again, Alan? It's all getting too uh, sedate, don't you think so? <laughs> how many incidents have you been busted? I mean, we're in trouble here. I was busted just three weeks ago. Of course, of course. There you movements for 200. Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, and Lawrence Ferlinghetti were part of this group of writers. Jeopardy, TV program. Oh. Burroughs, Kerouac, and Ginsey are accepted in the literary On the contrary, the point well, is, those three were the big ones, and if anybody afterwards... Oh, yeah. is, well, that's all right with me. Yeah. But it ain't all right with me, because they were the only way to place me. I had my book published before his. <laughs> you seem very bitter and... Bitter? Poetry what? and your work is so joyful. I wanted to play that because uh, Gregory Corso, that Jeopardy question, whenever you were Jeopardy question, and he was not happy that he was not included, and I, and I, Post that purposely because of Ferlinghetti, whom just died last week, and he didn't even consider himself a beat, and yet he is. Con- see, see how things are kind of warped in that situation. I have right before me a Coney Island of the Mind poems by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who is also in the Last Waltz, directed by Martin Scorsese. It is the the last hurrah of the band. You know, the band that played backing to Bob Dylan during that electric period. You know, 
Oh my goodness, Highway 61. Oh, they wanted him. They when Bob Dylan went electric, motherfuckers wanted him. Oh, they and you know the musicians were like, uh, do we really want to jump on this train? But you know when Bob is steering it, you know, come on, you, you're gonna make it. You're gonna make it in a little different way. Right here, I have selected po- San Francisco poems, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. One of these nights, I'm just going to do a whole... I'm going to read all of his stuff. Uh, here, here's a portion of it. The Green Street Mortuary Marching Band marches right down Green Street and turns into Columbus Avenue. Where all the cafe sitters at the sidewalk cafe tables sit talking and laughing and looking right through it. As it happened every day in little old wooden North Beach, San Francisco. But at the same time, feeling thrilled by the stirring sound of the gallant marching band as if we're celebrating life and never heard of death. Yeah. But, you know, if you want to really celebrate death, you go to New Orleans. Yeah. Everyone, you know, you get it's it's fiesta. It's fiesta times 10. You know, this show uh, in terms of direction, the reason why I chose films is I was just getting tired of, you know, talking about personal stuff and talking about Seinfeld. Well, not Seinfeld. I mean, politics. Uh, see how it kind of creeps into my head. I like Seinfeld, though. I, I grew up in the 90s watching it. But the beats, the poets, I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're part of society. Look at William Burroughs was in, was it a Nike ad? I think it was a Nike ad. Uh, and then was in a YouTube video right before he died. William Burroughs, William S. Burroughs. Oh my goodness. What, what a character had a loaded shotgun and, you know, Al Jorgensen of ministry loved William Burroughs. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. William Burroughs was out there, you know. Um, I wouldn't even call him provocative because to to call someone along the lines of William Burroughs, William S. Burroughs, provocative. Here we go. Hey, I'm talking to you. The purpose of technology is not to confuse the brain, but to serve the body. Make life easier to make anything, anything possible. It's the opening of the door. It's the coming of the new technology. Holy cow. Serve the body. New and weird. What we have done is square the air. of technology is not to confuse the brain, but to serve the body. And that is William S. Burroughs and Air Max Nike ad. I'd, I'm wondering, did they give him some Nikes? That's what I'd like to know. But the source, the source talks all about that. Talks about Naked Lunch. You know, it talks about Okay, everyone parroting the beats. Here's here's uh, Allen Ginsberg. To ourselves. Were they lovers? We felt very close to each other, just intuitively, but uh, you know, without any overt 
sexual thing, except that I was in love with him. I had a crush on him, I had a crush on everybody. They found African-American culture fascinating. They related to weird people like William Burroughs. Jack and I went out to investigate your uh, soul. Oh, they've inhaled it all right. And I want to uh, add a little something, you know, in college, right before I graduated, I got, I had to do something on Ginsburg, I think it was, for one of my late professors. He's, both of them are gone, in fact. And it was my other professor, who was also my boss, because I worked in the library. His name was Dr. Perkner, and he was from Czechoslovakia. Oh, yeah. He, I, he told me he knew Allen Ginsberg. And he, this is, this is the interesting thing. He was very liberal when he wanted to be. And when I, and then I asked more about Ginsburg and he says, oh, I liked him. I liked him until one day I saw him kissing his boyfriend. They both had beards. I thought that was nasty. Okay. And Allen Ginsberg talked about that, how he got kicked out of Czechoslovakia on May Day with, with his boyfriend. Yeah. So the beats. <laughs> this is a fascinating time. And I want to give uh, respect to Dr. Perkner wherever he is. My goodness. Uh, you know who always reminded me of him was the director Milos Forman. They were both from Czechoslovakia. Very interesting minds. You know, this is a movie podcast. And Dr. Perkner and I would talk a lot about films. He studied film. And he said to me when he first saw Pulp Fiction... He said, there is a reason why I like Pulp Fiction. And I said, why? Nobody was talking like that. And he had a good point right there. At that time in 1994, that dialogue, that screenplay, nobody was talking like that in film. The way Tarantino was weaving things together and editing things together. And for my professor, who was very conservative in some aspects and very liberal in some aspects, to be very fascinated with Pulp Fiction because of the language. He loved language. He loved how people communicated. You know, and um, we would have discussions about that. Although I will say the one, you know, here we are talking about the Beats and the Beats were all friends with Bob Dylan. Okay, my my professor did not like Bob Dylan. He said he didn't get it. He said to me one time, he says that is something about your country that I do not understand, Bob Dylan. And I said, well, you know, Bob Dylan is a troubadour. He is our American poet. And and at the same time, I kind of got it because you know, Bob Dylan, people either like him or people either hate him. Okay. There is something mystical and magical about Bob Dylan. You know, first of all, Bob Dylan 
you know what's funny is is that he does play the press because they played him early on or they thought they tried to but bob you know i mean you think of some of those lyrics and then you think of the times that he's been awarded you know it's it, and how he's he's kind of like put off by it you know and then people try to overanalyze uh you know he had a motorcycle accident in the 1960s and they say that that changed him forever but then if you watch interviews with him like scorsese did two documentaries on him and i'm thinking wait a minute there's nothing wrong with him he's playing the he's playing he's playing the audience and as a great artist that's what he has to do i in a way i don't know bob dylan i mean i'd like to one day you know he's gonna be 80 so i don't know but (laughs) i mean in a way i feel i understand why he does what he does He's he hasn't ever changed, you know. And oh, this is funny, funny Bob Dylan clip from Rolling Thunder review. I gotta watch this next. Mm, this is uh, this is funny. Oh, he can't because of the music. I don't, I don't want Bob. I, I don't think anyone wants Bob to come after them. Okay, is it here? Here it is. Traditional review, but it was in the uh, traditional. Um, form of uh, a review that's i'll call it bullshit you know i'm trying to get to the to the the core thing to the core of what this rolling thunder thing is all about and i don't have a clue because it's not it's about nothing it's it's just something that happened 40 years ago (laughs) and that's the truth why don't we go down that road okay we can (laughs) Let's go. All right, let's go. I don't remember a thing about Rolling Thunder. Okay. I mean, it it happened so long ago, I wasn't even born. (laughs) Uh, uh, So, what do you want to know? My God, he makes me smile when he, you know, he just delivers it. He, you know, if you look at his face, yeah, he's older, but you could still see that young Bob Dylan, you know, when the reporters are trying to ambush him and he's like are you do you read the magazine well you know you said this about me and he is not having it he is not having it there is a very poignant moment in the the source where Allen ginsburg and bob are i think they were at kerouac's grave ah here it is here it is Oh wait, let's see. Um, okay, here we go. This is this is in the beat. The source, I mean. If I can find the clip. Want to see you pull in the expert heath? So that's what's gonna happen to you? <laughs> no, I wanna be in an unmarked grave. Uh, I laid a copy of how on Baudelaire's grave. The pious woman um, washes Jesus' face. Simon And you know, they're standing at Kerouac's grave, and Allen Ginsberg kind of looks around and he looks at Bob and he says, This is what can happen to you and, and Bob Dylan without missing that beat. No. I'm going to be put in an unmarked grave. I believe that shit. Oh, I so believe it. 
ah, the beats, the beats, the beats. And I can understand why some people don't like Kerouac. I can under, he kind of, yeah, yeah, I can, I can understand. And there's women beats and there's male beats and there's so much going on. Oh, here's where they mention the wild one. Here we go, baby. Was vaguely planning and never taking off. I left with my canvas bag and took off for the Pacific Ocean. The whole nation was tilting westward. That's Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Been stirred for the Second World War, and it hadn't settled down yet. Somewhere along the line, I knew there'd be girls, visions, everything. Somewhere along the line. That's a scene from Pearl. The Wild One. There's just nothing like being out. Ken uh, Kesey. Get outside. Something happens to you, and when you're traveling through outside, the wind goes over the top of your head, and you get a static charge. You'll see people with their hair standing on end like this who've been driving a long time, and their eyes kind of wild. It's a high. That's Ken Kesey who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, directed by Milaj Foreman. Gravity of our imagination and poetics. Gary Snyder. Off the East Coast and came out into these grasslands. There was the expansion of a heart to learn and enjoy all of America. Uh, and that included, as you see in Jack's work and in Ellen's work, uh, the lives and minds of ordinary people. We arrived at Council Bluffs at dawn. All winter I've been reading the great wagon parties that held council there. And of course, now it was only cute suburban cottages all laid out in the Johnny Depp reading Jack Kerouac. And by God, the first cowboy I saw in a 10 gallon hat in Texas boots. Looked like any beat character the brick wall dawns of the East, except for the ghetto. America, this is quite serious. America, this is the impression I get from looking in the television set. America, is this correct? <laughs> That's Ginberg analyzing America. Interior. Burroughs. Uh, subdivision antenna of television to the meaningless sky. In life-proof houses, they hover over the young. Sop up a little of what they shut out. Only the young bring anything in, and they are not young very long. Just ahead, over the rolling wheat fields, all gold beneath the distant snows of Estes, I'd be seeing old Denver at last. There were smokestacks, smoke. Yeah, and that's where, you know, you talk about, okay, you got Michael McClure, you know, everyone arriving in San Francisco. And uh, they didn't go back home. It was a little like after any war, and it, uh, it was certainly like after the Civil War. When Lawrence Ferlinghetti, City Light Books in San Francisco. In San Francisco. He was a, a carpetbagger in the way, just like the East Coast Beats were all carpetbaggers, including myself. We were in the tradition of dissidents. So we started City Lights. The idea was to create a literary meeting place. There was a already cultivated a San Francisco Renaissance. There always was a anarchist, pacifist, anti-Stalinist, Allen Ginsberg, literary, bohemian, anti-war circle. People who want to be themselves, basically, 
people who want to remain. Jack Micheline. People who don't want to play the game. People who want to be whatever they are. And that manifested itself in literature and painting, in uh, bohemian parties, poetry readings. I would go into a macho bar and jump on the pool table and read some poems. Now, either I got beat up or I made $50. Most of the times I made $50. It was a cold night in the big city where love is the roar and death is the beat. And I yelled like a madman at the top of my voice. Everybody sing, everybody sing. And I started to sing a song about pretty flowers. And then the men in their white coats came with their jackets. And I told them to sing also. Let's sing a song. Let's sing a song. And they took me away, away, away from the roar and the beat. The beat, the beat, let's sing a song. Like, uh, man, I'm here, and I mean, I've met a swinging group. You know, oh, there's Michael McClure, who influenced Mr. Jim Morrison. Oh, here, they're talking about how. this far that night, listening to the burnt phrases, and I heard the poet out rhyming erection. When Alan read Howell, uh, we all knew that a line had been drawn in the sand. We decided that we would put our foot on that line that Alan drew. Well, I was there, and the next morning I sent a telegram to Alan Ginsberg saying, I greet you at the beginning of a great career. When do we get the manuscript? I had a conversation mm. with Rex about the next day. I said, oh, gee, I'm going to be famous in San Francisco or in North Beach. And he said, you're going to be famous from bridge to bridge. The first edition was printed in England. It was seized by the U.S. Customs in San Francisco. All during the trial, we were still selling it. We never took the book out of the window. There were a series of trials in the late 50s that uh, liberated the word, and that meant a whole spiritual liberation after that. It's really hard to get that kind of publicity. (laughs) And so... That's why I wanted to talk about the, the, the sources because of Ferlinghetti and City Lights book. And he, they all went to court because of Allen Ginsberg's howl. And we got we to gotta thank Allen Ginsberg and Ferlinghetti and also Lenny Bruce because, you know, they were saying things that you couldn't say. Remember when George Carlin got in trouble for those seven words you can't say on television? Just think Lenny Bruce got in real trouble. And so Carlin and Pryor were the beneficiaries of what the Beats and what Bruce were doing in terms of crossing that line. As Ferlinghetti said, you know, that Allen Ginsberg's poem, How crossed a line oh yeah crossed the line and it opened the you know break on through to the other side right there and jim morrison was influenced by ginsburg and kerouac and ferlinghetti and michael mcclure and even michael mcclure has said the way that jim morrison wrote those lyrics he was influenced by the poetry he was a poet first and foremost and that's why i wanted to talk to you about the the source this amazing amalgamation of poetry and influence and music and oh my goodness just culture culture you know and then 
you can also you know that's where slam poetry came from you know slam poetry was big at one point i knew a few slam poets i couldn't do it i would just write it i always felt you know when you write something if it's interesting you go back to it and then if it's you just had to write it to get it out you don't need to read it again it's a it's a vomit comet of sorts that's why i write when i started recording the show this podcast i thought well this is everything that i've ever in a way thought of you know to just do it to talk about it to get it out because at that time when i started the podcast i was very angry and i was very just kind of unloading things from the nine to five and it just got out of hand and i would sometimes let it linger on the podcast and thus i had no theme i had no course you know no path to set this um coast guard cutter uh, afloat you know i was sinking i was sinking so to do it about films and to do it about you know i mean here we're talking last night we talked about the devils which was banned at one point and here i am tonight talking about books that were banned in that wrong you should never ban art you just shouldn't art really influences whether it's good or bad there's a reason for it there there is a place in the sand that needs to be drawn outside the lines you know and so we go from last night's the devils to the source about these beat poets you know william burroughs william s burroughs was probably one of the most um transformative i mean you look at like i just mentioned al jorgensen of ministry was influenced by william s burroughs cut-ups because he would put he would basically paste words together and al jorgensen has said when he was recording in the land of rape and honey he took sounds and started cutting them up like william s burroughs would do william s burroughs was a father figure to al or to al uh, jorgensen and he has said that in fact if you watch uh, just one fix William S. Burroughs is in the video weaving his fingers in that video oh it's so amazing and so tonight I just wanted to give respect to the beat poets to give even more respect to Lawrence Ferlinghetti to Allen Ginsberg to Kerouac to William S. Burroughs to Gregory Corso and I want you to watch the source it's on DVD it's on YouTube I believe look for it the source 1999 about the beat poets okay as always unpleasant dreams good evening and welcome to the dr zeus film podcast i noticed that last night's episode had two much bass so much so that he was even putting me to sleep and so i promise you to well add a little more reverb you know like we're singing because sometimes i do but not on here you know tonight when i came home i forgot that it is the an it is turner classic movies anniversary and the first film that they played that night in 1994 was gone with the wind the controversial now gone with the wind even back then it was controversial my grandmother once told me that when it first came out kids couldn't go see it because they because you know clark gable says frankly my dear i don't give a damn and the legacy of the film there was so much said about gone with the wind that i'm not going to go into it 
I'm not going to visit it tonight. I've watched it. It's a moment. I like some of it, you know. I will say that I love the strength of Hattie McDaniel, first and foremost. What she brought to that film and the trials and tribulations that followed that performance. It was uh, it was a performance and it brought her an Academy Award. But at the same time, she was in the back of the room. She was not allowed to go to the premiere in Atlanta. Or how Clark Gable... Clark, you know, at that time... Unfortunately, everyone was kind of going along with it. You know, there's bad behavior. Everyone goes along with it. And um, what I've noticed is is that, you know, someone like Clark Gable, Clark Gable really wore his heart on his sleeve. And I read this, black and white actors were originally segregated on the set of Gone with the Wind. Yep. But Clark Gable leveraged his fame to influence social change. Actor Lenny Blewett, an extra on the film, went to Gable's dressing room and showed him the whites-only and colors-only signs above the bathrooms on the set. Blewett said Gable called director Victor Fleming and the property manager and said, If you don't get these signs down, you don't have a red butler on this film. Blewett said he went to bat for the black cast members and credits him with desegregating the set. And that's in 1939. Okay. What a what an epic moment. <sighs> I mean, I could talk about Gone with the Wind, but I don't want to because it's been talked about so many times. Oh shoot, I forgot. I better watch this soon. I rented Cream, America's only rock and roll magazine recently. But yeah, I got to watch that before it expires. I'll, I'll rent things and then, you know, you forget about them. And yeah, you know, I'm going to talk about this because I had talked about it back in December. Oh, no, I already talked about it. I don't want to overextend that. <coughs> There's so many films to talk about. Hmm. So many good ones. So many bad ones. You know... When I first started this podcast, I remember I went on a rant about five billboard, three billboards out of Ebbing, Missouri. And how I hated it. I still hate it. I still hate it. I love... I love Frances McDormand. I think Frances McDormand is such a great actress. And I loved her in... I think Fargo is so funny. And, and I really couldn't get into the TV show because I love the movie so much. Because there's certain things about the movie that you can't really put into a TV show. I think with a TV show, they over, you know they oversell it with all the different characters. That's just my opinion. It's not the gospel. Well, the truth. But it's, it's my opinion. You know, there's so many films out there that we could talk about. I should have talked about this last year. Last year was the 40th anniversary of Gloria, directed by John Cassavetes, starring his wife, Miss Jenna Rollins, Buck Henry, and Juan Amandez. Uh, 
Jenna Rollins and John Cassavetes are the godfather and godmother of indie cinema, basically. They made films in their home. They financed those films. A Woman Under the Influence. Jenna Rollins. I mean, she was nominated for Gloria. She was also nominated for A Woman Under the Influence. She didn't win. She got an honorary Oscar, I believe, in 2015. And, you know, it's bittersweet. And and what I loved is she said, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my late husband, John Cassavetes. And just that name alone. I mean, yeah, he was an actor also. You know, he was in Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> he was in uh, Hogan's Heroes. Yeah. He was in a film with Sidney Portier. Oh, my God. But Gloria is such a... Here we go. This is... I love this film. Something's going right. Thanks. Can I have a pizza pie? What kind of pie? Apple with vanilla ice cream. We don't have apple. And what do you have? Peach. You know, Jenna Rollins, I gotta say this, I love her, and she's one of those actresses where she just flashes you a look with those eyes, and it's everything that she can convey, and John Cassavetes, oh my goodness, the fact that he not only married her, but saw the power, so what happens is, there's this young boy, and he witnesses something. So basically they bump off the whole family They try to bump him off And she's a former gun mall And she knows the people who did it And Doesn't want to get mixed up in it Because she knows them But at the same time She can't She can't She can't live with herself Knowing that they're just going to wipe this kid out For that And takes it upon herself to rescue this kid it's a it's a beautiful story and and john cassavetti's hands come on you know i think every time he directed his wife it was poetic it was beautiful they they were making love on film basically when they would work together like that you know he knew what jenna could bring and she knew what john was going to give her yeah this is a great moment This is Gloria, released in 1980, 40 years ago, directed by John Cassavetes. Rest in peace. Come on, I'm not taking care of you anymore. Can't. I can't even turn you over to the cops. Don't you understand? I've been in jail. You understand, jail? 
people. I killed your parents. They're my friends. I can't get involved with you. Go on now. Run. interested in you all we want is the book and the kid do you understand sure boy why don't you take a walk take, we'll take care of that kid you got that book kid come here frank what you gonna do shoot a six-year-old puerto rican kid on the street you don't know nothing he don't even speak english basically fires those shots in her hands that gun takes on a whole other life the way she holds that gun and the rawness and the grittiness of Gloria that's the that's the essence of John Cassavetes and his frequent collaborator Miss Jenna Rollins his wife his muse and that's and that's what I miss is seeing films like that where it was a community, you know, everyone that worked with Jenna Rollins and John Cassavetes from Peter Falk and, uh, you know, I mean, Hello Colombo and A Woman Under the Influence or um, Ben Gazzara. Oh, my God. These character actors all breathing life, husbands and wives, you know, um, opening night, Jenna Rollins and her husband, John Cassavetes. You know, and they would finance these films, you know, by putting their house on the market, you know, and retain and then, you know, and then they make the films in the house and the kids are in the films, too. And Gloria was just such a gritty film. And I think originally someone else was going to do it and he just wanted Jenna to do it. And it's such a it was remade in 1999 with Sharon Stone. And, and you know, and Gloria was Gloria was uh, a gritty, gritty film. It was New York? It's New York. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that for me is uh, you know there there are nuggets 
and Gloria is a nugget that movie just the poster too Jenna Rollins with that gun I mean she's got that kid I mean she is her his protector you know great warriors that they have a they have a presence they have a um her her thing is that that's her that's her mission is to protect this kid I think that's why we love the Mandalorian is his true job is to protect that kid and to bring him to safe lodgings Mm. directed by John Cassavetes Jenna Rollins Julie Carmen Buck Henry John uh, Ademis music by Bill Conti released October 1st 1980 Mm, the production John Cap- John Cassavetes did not originally intend to direct his screenplay. He planned merely to sell the story to Columbia Pictures. However, once his wife Jenna Rollins was asked to play the title character in the film, she asked Cassavetes to direct it. Mm, I, I I'm going to mention this because I do I do love Roger Ebert, Roger Ebert wherever he is. He said. Um, it was a tough and sweet and goofy as well as fun and engaging but slight. He believed the overly silly nature of the script is redeemed by Cassavetti's re- Okay, never mind. Oh, Roger, Roger. Rollins was nominated for the Academy Award and the Golden Globe for Best Actress, and the film won the Golden Lion Award at the Venice Film Festival, tying with Atlantic City. Re- remakes and influences. Yeah, the remakes was just... Other films inspired by Gloria include Ultraviolet 2006, which uses the premise of a woman on the run with a little boy and transposes the story to a dystopian, futuristic setting. And Eric Zonka's 2008 film Julia, starring Tilda Swinton, Luke Benson's film Leon, which was inspired by Gloria, with actor Jean Renault playing the accidental gun guardian of a young girl, Natalie Portman whose family was murdered by a corrupt DEA agent. A 2009 Brazilian film titled Veronica has a similar plot, changing the main character from a gangster's girlfriend to a teacher who tries to save a student from criminals who killed his parents and are now chasing after him. In 2013, Paul Schrader was planning to his own remake of the film starring... Oh, goodness, no. No, Lindsay. Don't touch Jenna. Come on. What people what are you doing? What are you doing? Huh? What are you doing? These remakes. Mm. Uh, unnecessary. Very unnecessary. Uh oh, I love this one. Is this it? Oh. Oh, she's egging them on. She is so egging them on. Uh, I encourage you, my audience, 
the Dr. Zeus film podcast to watch Jenna Rollins. I'm not going to give the whole book away. I mean, the film, you know, you get that's where you sell the farm. You don't give the whole farm away. Come on. You give them a nice taste of Jenna Rollins directed by her late husband, John Cassavetes in this neo-noir crime thriller film tells the story of a gangster's girlfriend who goes on the run with a young boy who is being hunted by the mob for information he may or may not have yeah so enjoy this it's Gloria it's Jenna Rollins I think Jenna Rollins is one of our underrated actresses she doesn't get the credit that so many get she doesn't you know while I love Ellen Burstyn I love Ellen Burstyn there has always been talk okay and she said it herself they did a documentary years ago on the Oscars and she talks about that the year that she won for Alice doesn't live here anymore and she and then she saw a woman under the influence with Jenna Rollins And she said how fantastic that performance was and how she should have gotten the Oscar for that. But she but she said, not my Oscar. And and she said that and then she recognized that there is kind of a weird little grasping of that award that she doesn't like because then it when it leads up to who's gonna win. You know, did she feel she deserved it for Alice doesn't live here anymore? Or did Jenna Rollins deserve it for a woman under the influence? A lot of people have said that Jenna Rollins. She didn't get it for Gloria. That was, of course, the year of Sissy Spacek and Coal Miner's daughter playing Loretta Lynn. Loretta, yeah, that's a good performance. So then it's kind of like, okay, then, you know, it, it. that's the thing with the awards. That's why it, it truly is It's a crapshoot It's a crapshoot But that performance of Jenna Rollins I will never forget And John Cassavetes Whom I was going to talk about a month ago But I thought I'll talk about him later Because really John, John Cassavetes Without John Cassavetes The world of indie film as we know it Would not exist So much so that the Independent Spirit Awards have a an award for him the John Cassavetes award that is a testament to the brilliance and the freedom that's why I love John Cassavetes films the freedom of those films the freedom that he gave Jenna Rollins his wife and his muse to just go out there go out there on a limb like her idol Betty Davis who she later worked with And just do it and just bring it. It's not about the glamour. It's about bringing it. And in a woman under the influence, she brought it. And in Gloria, she brought it. And so Jenna Rollins is still with us. And my message to her is, I, I think you're amazing. I think you're amazing. And I think we really... I hold Jenna Rollins and John Cassavetes in high esteem. Because we don't have independent cinema without them. 
and what they did. I mean, now, yeah, people finance the films. Back then, they had to finance it. They had to go and and their friends helped them. And it was a beautiful time. It was like your kids, you play in the sandbox together and you come up with these characters. And that is the power of John Cassavetes and his film Gloria, starring the effervescent Jenna Rollins. Good night, unpleasant dreams. Good evening, and welcome to the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. (laughs) I'm out and about. It's hands-free sometimes. And, um, yeah. It's been an interesting week, hasn't it? We've talked about... I want the AC off. Off. We've talked about the devils. We've talked about Gloria. I mean, I you know, I don't want to sum everything up, you know. I think the Devils was probably the highlight of the week. And um, I, I want to just give a, a, a shout out to George uh, for also implying, you know, of using it for foreplay. Maybe when COVID lifts, I'll do that. You know, I'll have someone over. Hey, you want, you want to watch this freaky movie? You know, uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll see what happens. Um I'm going to go home and watch. I mean, my plan is, but you know how plans are to watch the documentary about cream magazine. I love documentaries. I think documentaries, everyone wants to watch reality TV. Fuck that. I think documentaries have been where it's at. You know, you can learn things, you can be grossed out by things. And then I'm going to try to watch the Billie Holiday film, the United States versus Billie Holiday with Audra Day. I love Billie Holiday. I got into her when I was a teenager. It was probably one of the smartest decisions I ever made. Well, one of the many, you know, because I remember I was I was working in the library in high school. Um, well, it was part of a credit, and it was like when you when you get to be a junior, you you either get to be a teacher's assistant or I worked in the library. And I remember one day someone was looking up something on Billy Holiday, and I thought, hmm. And I'd always kind of wondered about her from afar. And then I remember I had seen something about Motown and how Diana Ross had played her. And I thought, oh, okay. You know, yeah, baby, where did Billie Holiday go? No, I don't think so. You know, talk about stop in the name of love. But, and, and Diana Ross was nominated for playing Billie Holiday. And I thought, you know, I want to investigate Billie Holiday some more. And I bought the old records. Oh, my God. There is a quality to her voice that is so emotional, so provocative, so evocative. There's a lot of evocatives. Well, you know. Um, But I will honestly tell you, the later recordings of Billie Holiday are stunning. Because you can hear everything she lived through in those records and there's a really beautiful album called lady in satin and she is oh my god the orchestration the strings she's singing um at the end of a love affair or you don't know love or you brought me violets for my furs you've changed um and her voice i mean the outtakes 
you can hear I mean, and then there is a beautiful song that she did toward the end of her life I think it was months before she died called When It's Sleepy Time Down South written by Louis Armstrong and these are the last recordings that she did and they are stunning because her voice is basically gone it's gone and she is using everything that she has left to emote and to give us that Billie Holiday, um, you know, energy. And I thought, you know, film-wise, I've seen bits and pieces of Lady Sings the Blues. And hey, Diana Ross, you know, she did it. She, she brought it. But singing-wise, no. And I'm very curious about Audra Day. I've seen clips of her singing... Billie Holiday, and it is striking. Now, um, Audra McDonald, Broadway star, did Billie Holiday live at Something Grill and received a Tony Award for it. And I thought, that that is fascinating right there because she, she was able to analyze Billie Holiday's voice and how, and how, why no one else could sound like her and how she was able to uh, do a performance of that to re- to maintain the essence that was Billie Holiday. That no, you know, when they make these movies about these stars, and and they don't, they you know, it's like Janis Joplin. They for years they've been trying to make a movie about Janis Joplin, and I love what Bette Midler said because you know she did The Rose, and The Rose is kind of based off of a Janis Joplin, well, a- off of Janis. And she says, I don't think they will ever capture what she is in a film because there was no one else like her. And she was talking about how she did the song The Rose in the movie, which is kind of based off of, you know, how Janice thought she would never find love or never be in love. And the heartache of that, you know. Oh my god, I love, I love Bet. Yeah, don't get the obvious twisted. I think everyone's like, oh, well, you know. You're gay. You're supposed to like Bet. Well, I I like Bet. You know, oh, it doesn't hurt that she's a Sagittarius. I'm a Sagittarius. I I kind of I I get it. I get it. Um, great actress. I love the film for the boys. It's her and James Caan, where she's playing kind of. It's almost like this Bob Hope. Um, uh, you know, um, Lana Turner, whatever type of. War, you know, World War Two. It wasn't Lana Turner. Who was it? Maybe the Andrews sisters. Um, you know, performing during the uh, the Second World War for the troops. You know, and it covers. It goes all the way to the Vietnam War. You know, and so that I would talk about that tonight is these these performance films. You know, a lot of people don't like musicals. I get it, but you know, I talked to uh, my guest George recently about Ken Russell's Devils and Ken Russell directed Tommy. Tommy is such a wild musical film. You got Anne Margaret. You've got Roger Daltrey of The Who because it's based off The Who. And you have Oliver Reed and Jack Nicholson. My favorite we're just going to talk about Tommy. Fuck it. My favorite is the energy and craziness of how Anne Margaret dances um where uh, they're okay, 
oh, do I smash the mirror? Where the dance that she does, it's like, what? This is before disco, okay? This was, whoa, what the fuck? And then Tina Turner is giving it with the acid queen, you know? I'm the gypsy, acid queen. Um, yeah. Because they want to make a man out of Roger Daltrey because he's deaf and blind and dumb. You know, uh, but he sure plays mean pinball, you know, pinball wizard. I love the Who and I love those songs. And the first time I had heard of Tommy, I thought, I don't want to watch that. I watched it and I thought, oh, fuck, this is like one big giant music video where he, you know, he goes or she says, do I smash the mirror? And she smashes that fucking mirror with a vodka bottle. I mean, thankfully, it wasn't the beans, the Heinz beans scene. That's pretty messy. But and in the way he just kind of falls through that mirror into the water, you know, and and that's the that's the beauty of Tommy and Ken Russell. So for Ken Russell to go from the devils to Tommy, we can't play any of it because of the music. And I don't want the who to come after me. Um, I don't I don't want Ken Russell where his ghost or whatever he is to come after me. But that is the talk about the extremes to go from doing the devils to Tommy. And this this cast, I mean, you got Eric Clapton, you've got Elton John and Margaret, Oliver Reed, Jack Nicholson, Roger Daltrey, Tina motherfucking Turner. I know it's it's rock and roll. It's Tommy. Tommy was raunchy. Fuck. And and Anne Margaret actually was nominated for an Academy Award for Tommy. Didn't win. That would have been interesting if she had won. But you know, films like Tommy don't win. They retain that cult status by people searching for it. You know, it's like, okay, throughout the, you know, some films that we just love are not successful. And and who fucking cares? Because you're able to, as a cult following, get into it. And and I think that's what Tommy is. You know, um, I think we should have sing-alongs like they do with the Rocky Horror Picture Show of Tommy. Because everyone knows those Who songs. You know, see me, feel me, touch me. You know, he seems to be completely unreceptive. I'm sorry, I can't sing tonight. Usually I can, but not tonight. I'm driving. And yet it's hands-free. And when the Dr. Zeus film podcast goes hands-free, watch out. <laughs> you know, but... Yeah, there there is something so magical about Tommy the first time I saw it. You know, Elton John doing Pinball Wizard. And all the while, I'm thinking, Elton... I like your version, but just let the Who do their magic, okay? You know, I love Elton John. Trust me, I love him. Um, and then El- Eric Clapton's in it, and oh fuck, Tina Turner though, the Gypsy, the Acid Queen. That is fucking wild. And we got to give it to Tina Turner because Tina Turner didn't do a lot of films. She did, of course. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome where she played Auntie M you know that that is such a and hey it's it's Mel Gibson and it's Tina Turner okay it's Tina Turner I'm I'm multitasking don't pay attention to me um it's the Dr. Zeus film podcast I run this by myself when I edit it I edit it sometimes I don't want it edited when I record I record 
and yeah, you know, it's not, it's not totally professional. And you're going to hear clanking and I'm opening a gate because we don't have the, the electronic gate yet, but fuck it. I've got the show. And I will say that for the lack of professionalism that this show has, because I edit it myself, you're hearing all these juicy little nuggets that I'm doing right now. Just everyday things, throwing the keys down, locking the gate and saying, fuck it, good night. Um, But I maintain that as an interviewer, as a chronicler, as a historian of film, I give it my all. And I am professional. And that is my professionalism that I bring. So people will say to me, I've had friends say this to me and I love them, but sometimes fuck off. Where they'll say to me, you know, you really should do your homework. You know, if you're going to do a show, do you do a show? No, I'm getting a little punk rock here. So I'm not simmering down. And I've done this show. One time someone said to me who remained nameless, you know, you really should prepare better. And I looked at her and I said, well, you know, I've been doing this show for almost two fucking years. I think I know what I'm doing. Okay. I know how to speak into the mic. I don't know how I don't speak. You know, I'm not. It's not like Johnny Cash where they told him to back up from the mic because his voice is too boomy. Oh, I love that voice. But, you know, I, I know what I'm doing. Yes, I could improve some things, but I don't want to. Because I know my audience. I know my audience is with me. And I don't think people get that. People are like, oh, you just want the ladder to success. You got to clean that shit up, bitch. No. If I want the ladder to success, I know what I want. And I know how to do it. And it's not about ambition. It's about giving your audience authenticity. Giving them realness. Giving them love. Knowing that when you speak to them... If they're going through something, I mean, we're all going through fucking shit. Co motherfucking vid. And you know what? And I'm here for all of you. And that's why I want, I always try to provide my listeners with something daily a nugget of information, a nugget of love and understanding because I, want, I love all of you. I, it, that, you know, that's something that I really, I, I don't take my audience for granted. And that's why I try to give, or not try, because Yoda said, do or do not. There is no try. So I just do it. I do it. And that's why I record these episodes daily. It's not only something for me. Yeah, you know, I do it. Uh, what is it? <laughs> what did Elvis Costello said when he says about songwriting? He says it beats kicking the t- TV and seeing a shrink. <laughs> That's why I do this. It beats kicking the TV. <laughs> it beats seeing a psychiatrist <laughs> or a shrink and just well the same thing and and hashing it out. I hash it out on the podcast and you know give you information and give you love and give you culture and Tommy, you know, Tommy, can you hear me? I could sing that. It's not like they're gonna come after me. Tommy, can you hear me? You know, I love the Who. I love The Who. I remember listening to them in 2010 in a very dark point in my life where I was going through a lot of anger 
I broke a window. I have a really gnarly scar on my left arm because of it. No. And yeah. So the music, I feel the music. I get it. I understand it. So to know that there's a film about the Who's Tommy called Tommy, directed by Ken Russell, released in 1975. We can all breathe a sigh of relief thinking, ah, okay, we're going to go from the devils to this wild rock opera written by a really great rock and roll band, you know, and (laughs) shit, 40, 46 years later, huh? You know, ever since I was a young boy, I played the silver ball from Soho down to Brighton. I must have played them all. I ain't seen nothing like him in any amusement hall. That deaf boy, dumb and black kid, sure plays mean pinball. He's a pinball wizard. Oh, I love that. I love that original. I love the movie. And Roger Daltrey, my God, fucking rock and roll. I mean, the essence, the power, the calibration. And this film brings it. But I, for me, it's all about Anne Margaret. Anne Margaret just dancing like she does frantically. It's like, shit. Hello, Elvis. Because, you know, that was Elvis's love. You know, it, they were no longer together, but they always stayed in contact. He always sent her flowers. Isn't that interesting? So, Anne Margaret, who's going to be 40, 80 this year, 40. She's going to be 80 this year. Happy birthday coming soon, Anne Margaret. But it's all about Tommy, 46 years. Directed by Ken Russell, also who directed The Devils. So to go from one extreme, Miss Vanessa Redgrave and Oliver Reed, to another, Anne Margaret and Oliver Reed, Jack Nicholson, hello, and Roger Daltrey, this is Tommy. Directed by Ken Russell, 1975. Unpleasant dreams.